go hi guys welcome back to the original judo podcast i'm james austin and i am delighted today to welcome two people uh who would normally be i guess off the side of the map um we've got a couple of nutritionists on the line so uh on the one hand we have louise Blo, who works with the eis and on the other we have dr ian rollo who is a former judoka and may have once thrown me in randori a long long time ago <laughs> hi guys how are you doing yeah great hey. thanks james yeah, thank you for the introductions and uh, an invitation to uh, your podcast today <laughs> No, guys, thank you both for giving up your time. So if we could uh, start, could I get you both to kind of give me an introduction with like who you work with and then kind of what your relationship to judo is or was. Um, if we start with Louise. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm a performance nutritionist. I currently work for the Institute of Sports. Um, my main sports are diving and judo. Uh, and I've got a little bit of consultancy with British Athletics uh, on a spare day. Um, I started judo in March hmm, 2014 um, and it's been an emotional relationship ever since. Um, <laughs> I, I think yeah, going into combat sport, definitely a bit of an, um, an intruder, um, which I totally get coming from track and field. When you see people coming into your sport, you think, what do you know about my sport? So yeah, it's been a been an emotional ride, only two days a week with them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been fun, lots of challenges and the, the journey is continuing. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Have you have you been tempted to step on the mat at all? Stick a jacket on yet or not yet? No, honestly, the first time I watched judo, I thought I don't know how they do it because I'd be so angry. Um, <laughs> I, honestly, I, I could not do it. I'm a, I track and field, you know, I'm, I'm in my lane, stay out my lane. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's a track and field mentality. Um, yeah, I know I've got a lot of admiration for just the whole mindset behind judo uh, and the way those guys train um because yeah i watched it and i just i don't think i could do it um so no i've never been thrown the physio has the physio felt that he needed to experience it which resulted in a bit of a strangle um but yeah no i'm not putting myself forward for that um i've not jumped off the 10 meter diving board yet either so i'm not really very empathetic with my sports <laughs> <laughs> awesome um, ian what's uh, what's your background in judo and then where what are you doing now in with your, your... yeah so at the moment i'm a I'm a principal scientist for the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. And so I lead a, a lot of our service work internationally. And I lead a, a team of global advisors in Latin America and Asia. And, uh, but my, my, main, my main role is to provide um, service support. And I have done mainly in soccer, football, uh, for the last six years with uh, Football Club Barcelona and Man City for the last four years as well. Um, Co, uh, and then coordinating research with um, professional clubs, and then I manage our clinical research trials in um, in Europe also. Um, but my my relationship with judo goes way back. Uh, I, I started judo when I was seven years old, and then you know, and um, you know, uh, participated all the way through. Um, to my university years when when I first met you James um, I remember meeting James he was hanging off a climbing wall during freshers week and uh, I remember seeing him and saying, 
James, are you going to come to? And I recognised him from um, the judo circuit. And said, oh, are you going to come to our judo club at the university? And then, um, and then, uh, you know, James uh, got on board, and then I ended up following James to his club at Hardy Spicers. But you know, I remember, you know, all the way back from when I was younger, judo's always offered that, you know, that social element to it as well. You know, I started at a local club. The grassroots in a church hall at St. Catherine's Judo Club in Dunstable uh, to St. Albans Judo Club to the University Judo Club and then Hardy Spicers and Bishop Challoner in, in Birmingham and offered so much to me both uh, personally and professionally so it's always been part of what I've done um, unfortunately though I haven't put, stepped on the map for the last 10 years now uh, just because work commitments and everything really took over with my training and competition but um, you know my my last experience on the mat was throwing James for 10 so I'm happy (laughs) I think that that's up for dispute and we can we can can debate that long for a long time on this point in fact scrap the podcast scrap the plan yeah let's uh let's just go over that um no do you still own the kit do you still own the kit though is there still one in your wardrobe there's still one in the wardrobe and i've I've actually collected all my belts so i've got all my belts still um in the wardrobe as well um but uh you know james please i'm only joking because it's seriously (laughs) um um you know us mere mortals, you know, when I used to practice with James, it was all I could do to stand up after time because uh, and it really is the difference between us that, you know, strive to become Olympians and, and really compete at the top level. And, you know, it's a realisation. You, you train a judo, I was training five times a week, but that step up to be able to um, to compete with the likes of James is, a, is another category of that. No, well, this bit is definitely, oh, thank you very much, but this bit is definitely being cut out of the, the podcast. <laughs> we don't have any compliments on this uh, <laughs> this show. Um, going, going back into uh, like the, the, what we discussed ahead of time, um, Louise, so you, you came into judo, um, or you talked about coming into judo from being an outsider, I guess. Like One of the things I want to talk about today is like weight cutting behavior were you aware that it takes place um were you expecting the or what was the extent of behaviors that you saw in terms of weight cutting when when you came into the sport or weight management um so i came from having a little bit of experience with boxing not as a a lead nutritionist but just more as work experience um i personally looking back now having been there seven or eight years feel like i probably went into elite sport very uh, into sorry weight making very prematurely I think I was I definitely didn't have the skills and the knowledge to be able to steer uh, a culture that was embedded as deep as it was on the restricted time so I I started off on a day a week Um, I had a day to go there I had half a day to do some admin Um, you're not going to have an impact on such such low FTE Uh, so that was my struggle it was it was almost like they liked what I was saying they understood what I was saying but you're not going to stop the behaviors and habits just by being there one day a week and not having that presence um and when i went to judo i it's now at the center of excellence in warsaw and it was a new center so there's a lot of junior athletes there as well we didn't really have any seniors um 
And because they've not had consistent nutrition support, we didn't have any seniors that already maybe had good behaviors or good knowledge of nutrition and maybe how to make weight safely. So we didn't have any role models. So you were starting from scratch with juniors that were incredibly hungry for success to get on the senior uh, circuit and to perform at the senior circuit. Um, and that's was their focus. So their ideal of maybe having to change their diet, change their nutrition, um, wasn't wasn't it just wasn't at the forefront of their mind. Um, the coaches knew it needed to happen because they got their experiences of making weight and how obviously whatever weight category you're going to be in, I say obviously, but to me it's obvious, and but maybe to you now it's obvious. But what category you might be in at you know 18, 19, 20, you're going to continue to grow naturally and increase in size, especially in judo, which is all you know very a lot of hypertrophy in just its training. Um, but they didn't, they just didn't grasp it. Um, so yeah, I found it, I found it really difficult. A lot of strong personalities, a lot of strong minded coaches, um, not necessarily in a negative way, but it was, it was difficult to uproot. And I know some athletes were kind of wanting to follow advice, but then because of the weighing culture and coaches maybe looking at the number on the scales and commenting on it would then lead them to go home and maybe miss a meal or not drink anything so that they came back on the desired, desirable weight the next morning. So yes. it, it was incredibly hard for the first three, four years, definitely through to Rio. I, 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 remember, I remember going to Rio as a track and field athlete and just reflecting upon what my career had got to at that point as a practitioner and feeling like I'd not achieved much um, in judo. And I've been there three, three and a half years. And I, and I just questioned what I'd achieved, if anything at all. And, and I think when you kind of go to a job and you invest so many years of your life, you want to be able to go and maybe think that you've achieved something or you've made an impact somebody else's life um left a little bit of a legacy for change and I, I felt like by Rio I'd not I'd not even made a dent um which was which was quite hard and like I say on one day a week you're not going to travel so I didn't see the weight making practices you just hear them um and, and to them losing five kilos a week was nothing at that moment in time they were just it was something that they you know they found quite yeah, so important James, for that for that on to that point though, James, you, are, you almost asked two questions, right? So there's the issue of body mass management, so weight management, and there's acute weight loss strategies, right? And there's two, and there's two issues there that, um, that it's not surprising that that is your initial question for Louise and I, because they're the deep-rooted issues within judo culture um, with regards to practice around diet training as well as as competition so um you know we're all aware of the the challenges um that this that the judokas face but there, there's two different issues there that we could probably discuss and uh, from an ongoing okay perspective. so uh your your own experience as you as a judo player uh ian i guess and how does that stand up against your kind of knowledge now? Like, did you cut weight and then would you still cut weight? Is it necessary or, again, we're yeah. talking about these two different areas where... So I think I'll probably speak, you know, from my experience, my early experience as a judo player, it's probably similar to a lot of people in that the, the advice around nutrition comes from either your coach or your peers, right? And it's most likely, with all due respect, that they aren't the best qualified to give advice 
and that advice is typically based on their historical experience on the map, what's worked for them, as well as what they've seen their, you know, their peers do. And you know what it's like when you, when you went to your first few big competitions, you'd be looking around and just seeing what everybody else was doing, you know, and you'd be like, oh, wow, uh, he's got, you know, he's doing this or he's doing that or he's got this big bottle of water he's drinking after he's weighed in and like, how much did he cut by and, and all of this. Um, and so it's a lot of hearsay and, and almost Chinese whispers within the sport, which certainly doesn't help practice and I don't know if you've found that Louise that um, you know certainly the coach being the primary provider of nutrition advice um, within the clubs. Yeah that, it's, that is a that's a massive issue and I recently did a podcast with one of the athletes um, Nicola Davis who's a world medalist and she's very passionate about getting the message down in terms of weight making and how it's impacted her um, not just you know her on the map, but her in a personal life as well. And we ran a validation event to the other coaches, and there was there was a demand for it afterwards. I, I ran through some basic information on hydration and you know queried why we still had them training in sweatsuits and um, you know safe weight making, uh, just some of the the key fundamentals of nutrition. And one of the coaches said, "I've, I've been in this sport for for thirty years, and this is the first time I've ever known any of this." Um, and that's the person that it's going to go to and they, they don't have the key fundamentals because it's not even part of it. It's not part of the coaching program um, when they come into the sport. It's just, they're just not taught it. And it should be not just in junior, but across every sport. It, it should be, it should be it's included. A, it's important to know. I think, sorry. Just, sorry, I was going to say, I think um, I've, I've, I've jumped right in and, and got you guys started. Um, not, there's going to be some people who do it casually. Why, why do people make weight? What is the thinking behind cutting weight? Why are we trying to make a weight category? Yeah, so it's important to note that it's been documented and there's evidence to support that, that an effective acute weight loss strategy is associated with, some impro with, with uh, improved performance and competition performance. So, and we know it's hugely prevalent within the sport. Our, our challenge is to do it safely and properly um, and so that people follow um, guidelines. You know, it's going to happen because there is that performance advantage to it and so people will seek that performance advantage. But the, the challenge is to follow appropriate guidelines that people are doing it safely um, and, and within sensible uh, parameters. Uh, would you agree, Louise? Yeah, I think I think I, I feel I agree with everything you just said, but I also kind of feel is there an issue with the age that we're asking children to make weight? Um, you know, some of the athletes I work with, all of them, as soon as they've got through the front door, they've already got those issues already there. Whether it's the relationship with food or the relationship with scales, it's already been made. Um, I had one athlete that told me that the first time she wanted to do a judo club, she weighed about 56 and they put on the scales and said, oh, you can make 50 kilos. Um, and then the next thing she got a present, the present was a sweatsuit and it's, the damage was done from that point forward. Um, she you know, I've, I've then had to try and work with that. And this, this athlete is in the happiest place if she's in a category that doesn't quite any weight making at all. Um, and I, I just, I just wonder, you know, 
maybe do the changes really need to come from the top? Does it need to come from the international governing bodies in terms of actually we need to review what we do at the junior cadet and even the younger age level? How do we manage judo, which does need to have some kind of weight category for safety, but how do we do it so they're not making weight? And yeah, that's such a good point because I, I don't know about you, James, but I remember I remember competing in under 35s, I think, <laughs> and with, you know, about 50 on the mat. But even at that age, the, my coach at the time um, advised a, or the, the, one of the, the parents of, uh, of um, another person at the, the club advised a, you know, a laxative the night before to make weight. And I must have been, what, eight or nine years old. So wow. that's, such good, that's such a good example of, of you, know, the, you know, the embedded issue of weight category sports. You know, if, if it's enforced at a young age, then it is, it's only going to, it can't be healthy, really, uh, a healthy practice. But, um, but when, you know, there's that focus on competition, there's that almost pressure to do so. So um, I agree, Louise, there needs to be something... You know, put in place, especially for the younger, younger athlete. Could you could you firm up for me, like what what some of the the dangers or risks are? I think if you look at the really extreme end of professional sport, um, and you consider the amount of media MMA is getting at the moment, you see some really, for me, and I've done some shocking weight practices, but you see some really shocking weight practices, and you're starting to see a handful of athletes. Um, who die from like consequences related to their weight cutting? Um, are we are we talking about that extent of risk in judo? Are we talking about uh, performance effects? Something in between? I mean, I, I feel that there's a chance that we may see it, but I also feel like because of the five percent weight check that's been put in the day of weighing, even though it is random. Um, I feel like that for, in some aspects may have capped how well the limit that some people might want to bring the weight down from because if you really do crash you know eight nine ten percent of your body mass yes you're going to put yourself at risk but as soon as you eat and you drink your glycogen stores your hydration your water stores are going to replenish and you're going to find yourself overshooting that five percent the next day and then should you get cold you've then got 30 45 minutes to sweat it all back out again for the random weight check there's, there's no way you're going to perform at your best on that um, it's just it's just not feasible. It's not possible. Um, you're going to be you know you just go into compromise. So um, I do feel the five percent weight check may have you know encouraged safer weight making practices, but it doesn't mean there aren't people out there that will stretch the limit as as much as they can because the the, the belief in judo is that bigger is better, um, mm -hmm. and and that's what they want to feel. You know because judo again. You guys tell me tell me what you think but from my understanding obviously judo is gripping you you feel the strength you feel outpowered by the other person um whereas judo taekwondo you know taekwondo and, and boxing it's hit and move hit and move so okay yeah, you may feel the physical power once you've been struck but you don't feel the power of being gripped and held and physically forced um so that's where you know just talking to guys trying to get the differences between combat and weight managed sports why you may then get that different approach to weight management and why heavier is bigger from the, the different perspectives. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, James, you alluded to it. You know, when the pressure is on to make weight, you do stupid things, right? And some crazy, some crazy practices. And, you know, 
I wonder if you could share something that you've done um, to try and make weight in the past. Uh, I mean, I've, I've done all the typical things. So bin bags, running, saunas. My, the worst. So I finished my career under 100 kilos. Um, as a junior athlete, I was under 73s and then under 81s. And like the stupidest thing I did was... Um, convincing a gym owner to put a static bike in a sauna and letting me put a sauna suit on and then go into that sauna on my own not with anyone else and proceed to try and lose the eight kilos that I needed to get to uh, 81 kilos um yeah that was it yeah and it's James I'm sure you won't be alone I have been in a sauna with a sweatsuit on when I was at university and it put me in the locker for weeks afterwards, right? Yeah. It's, you're not alone in this practice. And I think that's just the recognition and admission of some of this stuff is really important. Um, but then, you know, moving on from that, where do we go? Because it's important to recognize that people are doing these crazy practices. It doesn't seem crazy at the time, Right, you're like right. I need to do this. Right, <laughs> this is a great idea. This yeah. is a great idea. Um, and, and, what um, could go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong? But the you know, certainly, what we know now is that you know body, your, your body composition management is in, is important, right? So, um, and with judo, you have got opportunities to periodize your training to peak for for competition. So um, certainly body composition management, and please Louise speak to this, but then also practicing your cutting strategy for competition is really important. And this gives you an idea of what you need to do in preparation for competition. And then also what you can tolerate because other individuals will have specific tolerance to the degrees of uh, hypohydration so the, the decrease in body water that they can tolerate and how that may impact on performance so you know understanding your individual thresholds would be so important going into uh, competition one what you can achieve and then two you know what's going to be optimal for your performance okay and um kind of coming back to your early point where what's the what's the What's the difference? We've started talking about rapid, like this rapid weight loss, this acute weight loss. What's a, where does your weight management end and, and rapid weight loss begin? What are the differences between the two? Um, what, what should we be doing? What should people be doing? Okay. Louise, do you want to take that for weight management, if you like? We've, um, we, we, we try and keep it at half to 1% body mass per, per week that they can lose. Um, obviously the, the lower the better so if, if they're sitting quite comfortably I still um, encourage them you know two three weeks out just to just to gradually bring it down a little bit more because what I realized that they were doing even if they were sitting under five percent which is quite a comfortable place to sit you know you're not really going to be suffering like major risks to make weight from there uh, they were still leaving it to the last minute and just turning it into an acute weight loss and compromising the week's training and then also just you know that last 48 hours would making it extremely difficult for themselves um, so yeah, I try and encourage them, you know, half, half percent, one percent for those that are on 
referring back to body composition here, and those that have optimized the body comps can't get skin folds any lower and they are on the brink of the category. You know, we'll, we'll use the 1% to, to bring it down. Um, and then with the dehydration, you know, we'll leave it all. It depends on what's available, but ideally if we can leave it to the last 24 hours for the dehydration to bring it down a bit more acute, um, then that's what we'll do. But that, that massively depends on what's available at the venue. Um, and you guys will know, is, is there a sauna, is there a bath? You know, what, what can you use to get the water? water out but obviously again they're encouraged to do that from an already fully hydrated status um there's no point trying to dehydrate four percent if you're already three percent dehydrated because then you the water's not going to come out and it's you send yourself into the tricky territories again. yeah so that's the approach that we've got but again i'm restricted to working with 12 athletes now that are going to tokyo so those get a lot of bespoke support and the the others you know do their best to try and um do it with generic guidelines and advice that we can give yeah. So, so yeah. To summarize, so your body mass management, James, is that is that um, body composition? You know, your day to day, how much body fat you're carrying around relative your relative to your muscle mass, and yeah. so, you know, it's unrealistic for you know people and judoka to to go around all the time at competition based you know body composition. And I, I, I don't suggest we um, advise that, but that's why we say you stick within maybe plus five percent of your body of your fighting weight, so that you've got that period of time to slowly reduce your body fat down to to fighting levels when you need to, and then so that's your body mass management. But then your acute weight loss strategies is really primarily focused on manipulating your body water so how much water's in the body as well as your energy stores so how much glycogen you have um, uh, that you're retaining in the body in your liver, mainly in your liver and in your muscles and there there is some evidence that you know some of the food that you retain within your gut can help um, manage you know specific way in weight but um, as, I think the, the two main ones would be your, your energy content and your body water. Um, there's not, none others there, are, are there, Louise, I don't think? No, they're the main ones. Um, we've got, most of our athletes do sit reasonably well there. So with some of our key players can sit, you know, a, a bit higher, 7-8%. Um, and then once they've got the fat mass off, they're like you say, they're still going to be sitting relatively high. So then it is that gradual depletion of the glycogen stores done over time through just strategic periodizing of carbohydrates, um, you know, make sure you still support your training, but then removing them um, at some of the other times and also being a little bit more strategic with what we do with training load as well and make sure we're not overdoing the hypertrophy stimulus and, you know, make sure that the protein is, is probably low around the training because we don't want to give the amino acids to feed because we need, we're going to need some of that muscle to come off because they engage in, when you engage in that training, when you're, uh, got high energy availability so when you're meeting your energy needs and your, your food intake's nice and high because of what the, the you know because of what judo is um it's hypertrophy you pick up you throw somebody you pick up you throw somebody they find that they keep creeping out of that category so you know we have to try and keep them down a little bit as well um so yes yeah, so for, for some of them that are sitting on the the very brink at the top end there's, there's a few battles that they've got to fight um, and you know we could deplete lose the water we can deplete the glycogen stores and get rid of the fat mass and then for some of them we're trying to maybe strip just a little bit muscle they might be sitting a little bit too high um, but generally with weight loss you'll find you might lose a little bit of muscle anyway 
Um, but it's, you just you want to keep as much functional mass as you possibly can, but the same way you want them to get on the scales and get on that mat, feeling the best they've ever felt with as much energy as they can possibly have. From, from what you're both saying, it does nutrition for performance look different to nutrition for health then? Louise. <sighs> Ideally it shouldn't, but I think, I think there's an agreement out there that elite sport isn't healthy and it isn't good for you, whether you're talking about nutrition or your training load or the, the mental health aspect of it. I think there is a consensus out there that you're always going to be walking a very, very thin tightrope um, and it's easy to fall either side. Um, so ideally we should, you know, like, like Ian's alluded to with the periodization in combat sport, especially at this level now, we're getting better at periodizing our cycles. So we should have cycles where nutrition is spot on and it isn't compromised. And we should be able, all, all the macro and micronutrient needs should be there and they should have balance with their performance nutrition and also their social life because food is incredibly emotive. Um, and people do turn to it in different kind of you know, emotional needs, whether it is like you're social or you're just having a night in. Um, I am massively, I'm a big believer in looking after the human beneath the athlete and make sure that they get and understand that balance. Um, because I want them to retire with a, with a healthy relationship with food, um, which can be quite difficult in combat sport. Um, the reality of the situation is in weight making, obviously it's not, no one is ever going to advise or recommend anybody to lose weight any point when you're in a healthy adult or a healthy child it's just you wouldn't recommend it so we are then in a situation where for performance reasons and in order to compete we're asking people to lose weight when they don't necessarily need to to get on the scales therefore putting them in an energy deficit uh, restricting food intakes and depending on like you say the severity for that individual with their body composition you know you're going to be putting them in you know potential low energy availability uh, for a short period of time and the shorter that period of time, the healthier for the athlete. Um, the risk with judokas who don't understand how to make weight well and haven't optimised the body composition correctly is that they end up in low energy availability for a long period of time because they don't understand how to push the calories back up to then bring them down okay. and periodise. Um, so ideally it should be, should be healthy, but I think unfortunately that it's that tightrope, in my opinion. I don't know, Ian, if you've got any. Well, I, would, I would disagree that elite sport is not healthy now because there's no reason for it not to be but i i would suggest that competing in elite sport increases the risk of developing unhealthy behaviors and specifically competing or exposure to specific sports like judo where weight category or weight management is an emphasis then again increases that risk of unhealthy behavior and unhealthy consequences. So that would be my take on it. I think when I get my new knee and hip joint for my 40th birthday, I'll ring you up and remind you. <laughs> oh, I, I like this. I, I want to get more experts on and then um, have it devolve into a fight. That's yeah. what I think. Be I think I think our knowledge on learning and understanding how to monitor training load to look after our athletes. I think we're putting more yeah. support around them for performance lifestyle, increasing of mental health, and the impact that some athletes may live away from home a lot and you know may miss that support system that they get at home. Um, it's definitely improving. It's definitely moving in the right direction, um, and I, I think it is definitely taking a healthier approach to it. 
Um, yeah. But it's still, okay. still not getting it right. Um, and I think I might need a new knee. Do we think, do, do we think, do we think judo helps itself? So like, I'm talking about the IGF circuit. Um, they have this 5% rule uh, where the following day you could be randomly tested. And if you're more than 5% above the weight category, um, you, you can't fight. And it, again, it is, I'm assuming it's designed to limit the amount of weight cutting. Um, my understanding of that rule is that that's come from a study basically based on uh, US collegiate wrestling, which was conducted, I think, back in the 90s after a couple of wrestlers died through like weight cutting practices. Um, they introduced like this percentage and they found that uh, for the season, wrestlers' weights, they managed them better. They saw less extreme cuts, as I think we're seeing in judo. I think, I think where I'm going with this is like wrestling is a seasonal sport. It lasts three months of the year, and you have nine months where you can live a healthy, normal lifestyle. Um, judo is a calendar, certainly on the IGF circuit, is like a year long. There doesn't seem to be many breaks. And if there is, they're not long enough that you could indulge to any extent, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there's a question in there or if there is just... No, I mean, I'm intrigued by the wrestling because then all of a sudden my, um, I don't know, mindset suddenly goes to, as wrestlers only compete for three months, do they then just crash and maintain a low energy availability for three months to try and get into the lowest weight? I don't know. I'm, I'm literally just thinking out loud. Um, that would be first thing that I think of but with, with, with judo one of the big problems that we had when I first started was the judo calendar and that especially those that were going or were competing to try and get to the Olympics because they were qualifying for points two years before the Olympic Games uh, they would compete 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 yes yeah. as many points as they can whereas now we're so much better at periodizing our work um, if, if I showed you the work that British Judo have done with bringing them back in from lockdown and how they've managed the training load and counted the minutes of Randori and technical Judo and what they're doing with S&C compared to where we were in 2014, 2014, um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous the progress that we've made. Um, and just this, this understanding now for periodizing nutrition and the athlete who I have got who is, you know, qualified for the games, but sitting right on the end of her category, they've gone, okay, so we need to target key competitions and then compete in the category above. Um, instead, there, there's so much more awareness around it now from from British judo where we've come from. Um, just just to look after that and this, the awareness of of periodization and and how important it is to to get those training blocks in and the energy availability up. Um, and also also hypertrophy as well. We have some athletes that you know that were sitting just under and needed to hypertrophy and um, you know they they didn't have time to get in the gym <laughs> because they were always on a plane. And with, with the strategy around that now is is so much better from from you know at the program point of view but again going down to grassroots and the awareness around that it's it's possibly not not there and that education needs to get out oh well, awesome that's that's brilliant and when particularly that you've managed to answer my uh, leathering statement that didn't really go anywhere <laughs> um <laughs> uh, kind of on that point say again. James, that you know what what louise and colleagues are doing at British Judo and the EIS are probably, you know, they're still probably light years ahead of other practices from other federations and other countries, right? So we we have a responsibility 
maybe not to seek that performance advantage, but to share these learnings and try and lead and show the rest of the world how, you know, best practice really. Um, because I'm sure in other countries that there is potential for, you know, for, for this historical practice that we said isn't necessarily inducive to health to, to continue. So um, I think, um, you know, the, what we what so we have put in place over the five, last five years is, is has been excellent. So that 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 does kind of lead on. How do we get that? Um, how do we get the message out there to the wider population, the wider Judon population? And I guess there's two parts to that. And if we go, um, like, so in, yeah, um, we've talked about. I've talked a little bit about how much it's visible at the moment, like weight management weight loss in the media in terms of like particularly MMA but boxing as well information is so accessible kind of online and good practices and bad practices are really visible like how how can people tell what is good and what is bad yeah it's a really it's a big challenge right especially when you see you know um, some examples from uh high-profile athletes not adhering to guidelines and you know role models and young athletes and you will see those guys and take that as um you know the the blueprint on for success right so um louise what do you what do you recommend from an education perspective with your athletes i i agree with you it's it's incredibly tricky i've felt for a while that um as well as like celebrities are verified with a blue tick, I feel like qualified professionals maybe should get a green one so people know who they're going to. That's a nutritional body. And the reason why I say that is I sat down with an athlete, it wasn't a judo player, but I, I remember her saying she'd um, tried out multiple different diets, you know, vegan and all this. And she just looked and she said, Lou, I follow this person, this person, this person. I'm so confused. I don't even know what to do with my food anymore. And it's, it just becomes a bit of a minefield out there. Um, because it is incredibly accessible and I, I think maybe you know places like GSI and British Judo we, we do kind of have a platform and, and uh, maybe we, we definitely need to get more information I know British Judo we definitely need to start and it is, it is on the agenda to get more information out there in terms of um, whether it's through the coaching setup or whether it is through social media and just putting you know snippets of information which then maybe leads to a bit of an education piece around it um, and keeping them interactive as opposed to just you know reading information it, it, is, it is it is incredibly challenging it is incredibly challenging to do that but as everybody else seems to get through on social media it's probably the same way that we need to do that too um we just maybe need to be a bit smarter in terms of how we get out there and making sure that we do reach the right people yeah i agree and, and it's getting that education at the right age as well so developing good habits from a young age i think is uh, is key um certainly anybody looking for advice should should seek qualified professional advice so in the uk we have the register for sport and exercise nutrition um, that you can access for you know qualified sport and exercise nutritionists um, that that will, will give you um, expert advice because that's the challenge with nutrition everyone's an expert right everyone eats everyone that's competed in judo historically will tell you what worked for them and so of course 
that's the message that gets sent forwards. And so certainly it's the, it's the governing bodies and, um, and British judo itself that really should be encouraged to produce those education materials and distribute it appropriately, like Louise said. There's no point pointing them towards scientific papers. They need easy to follow guidelines and advice. I, I generally, I generally feel like with judo, um, their attitude towards food and nutrition is: if I don't need to make weight, I don't need to know have any knowledge on nutrition. Um, and I used to get that a lot at the centre when you used to ask some of the athletes if you put a workshop on. Um, some of the athletes would go, "Do I need to come? I don't need nutrition because I don't need to make weight." And that was it. Food was a weight making resource. Um, they didn't see it as a you know a fuel and recovery you know resource way to adapt and to enhance your immunity and to grow and you know, to support your well-being. Um, they, didn't, they didn't see it as that. And they, they didn't see that they had to maybe upskill themselves in advance because they are going to continue to grow as athletes. And they are going to gradually drift away from that category that they want to make and they're going to have to start adopting weight-making strategies. And if you've got the knowledge ahead of time, it's easier to then implement as opposed to being reactive um, and then come and try and fix the problem, which is, is generally what you see. You see an athlete have to go tell them back before they knock on your door. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd like to see more of a proactive kind of let's get on top of this, let's upskill you in your knowledge of food so that you understand what a healthy relationship with food is, which is going to massively help you into retirement. Um, and then if you do need to start making weight, it's easy to put those things in place or, or even hypertrophy. Now I get them knocking on my door saying I need to go on a hypertrophy plan. I'm like, you've not done, you've done nothing. And all of a sudden it's, we're going for hypertrophy. Can you have some creatine? You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but James, you've almost proved your point and uh, the confirmational bias here and the stereotypical approach because you know you've invited two nutritionists on your podcast and your first questions are on weight management and weight cutting right not in, yeah not in the benefits of nutrition in general um for health and performance right so if, okay. if anything that highlights you know what is top of mind um in a you know for a judoka that's next level uh thinking and preparation that was definitely not going to go into this podcast <laughs> but, um, um kind of like if we if we start wrapping it up thank you guys for your time like if you, you've, you've talked about the register of nutritionists. Is that accessible to, I guess, the layperson, the person who isn't talking about elite performance, the person who's competing and, you know, just wants to get down to 73s or, you know, to stay at 66 to have their best performance? Or, you know, could you go, are there resources out there that you'd suggest people went to? Or is it, again, you're talking about going to find someone appropriate? I go to the GSSI page. Yeah. So I um, <laughs> so James, I'll I'll share with you the link and mm -hmm. um, there's there's resources on the Gatorade Sports Science Institute website called Sports Science Exchange Articles and they're mm -hmm. basically short reviews of scientific topics. Now a former colleague of mine, Reed real did his uh, phd with the australian institute of sport specifically on weight management and weight cutting strategies for combat sports um, now reed wrote uh, an sse for us which includes guidelines as well as a decision tree on you know weight 
cutting strategies. So for all judoka out there, I really encourage them to read um, the articles that I'll share with James to put on the, um, the podcast website um, and, and follow those guidelines. Um, now, Reed's gone on to be you know, head of nutrition for the UFC now, so uh, um, based in their, their China Institute. So, um, you know, more extreme, and that's what we want to encourage, evidence-based practice and, um, and guidelines from, based on science. And so that would be my resource that I would, would re- recommend all uh, judoka and, and your listeners to follow. Awesome. Well, both of them will be delighted at that. <laughs> um, no, like if you could share that, that'd be amazing, and I would throw it up on the, uh, the the show notes as well as on the website. That'd be that'd be fantastic. Um, guys, if people want to follow you um, on social media, um, where's the best best place to find you? Uh, Instagram for me is Louise.blow. Um, and I'm pretty much the same for my Twitter handle as well. Yeah, and you're on TikTok, on... Ian. Yes, I'm working on my uh, lip syncing at the moment. But um, um, no, I'm only on on Twitter on social media, and I'm at Rollo underscore I uh, on Twitter. Yeah, that's that's all from me. Fantastic, um, guys! Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, superb. All the best. Uh, thanks for the invitation, James. And um, maybe uh, uh, if you get a good response from this this podcast, you can and get any specific questions back. Then maybe invite Louise and I back, and we can uh, we can we can come back if invited, because uh, there's certainly lots of other topics on um, nutrition, and maybe this is a good platform to help spread uh, good practice for, for throughout the sport uh, i would love that and uh, that sounds like a commitment as well so um yeah. well i'm volunteering louise here so uh... <laughs> i'd agree with that i'd agree with that definitely it's a good platform to actually not just talk about it but to educate and inform and upskill people so yeah, yeah. awesome all right so good thanks again guys catch you soon all the best james Thanks, Louise. Cheers, thank you.